From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, March 31st. An organization in our region is examining water quality and access on tribal lands. Emma Vandenaiti of the Mountain West News Bureau took a trip to the border of Arizona and New Mexico to see how. Let me put it first. Taishiana Soshi and Kimberly Ballone are standing in the dark in an office bathroom on the Navajo Nation. They're holding up plastic bags filled with water from the sink. Mine is the first bag on top. Oh, my bad. <laughs> Ballone shines a black light on one of the bags. Soshi says that will help find contaminants. What we're looking for is basically if it's like glowing really, really bad. Ballone and Soshi don't think there's any E. coli, but they see some harmless bacteria in some of the numbered bag compartments. I think two and three on both of them are fluorescent. I was thinking three, and I don't, I don't think yours is. Really? Yeah. This test is a crucial part of their Diné household water survey, conducted by the Johns Hopkins Center for Indigenous Health. It aims to learn more about water on the Navajo Nation. Estimates about water access and quality vary widely. The Indian Health Service says just over 9% of Native people lack good sanitation. But the Water and Tribes Initiative reports that number is as high as 48%. And the problem is concentrated in the arid southwest, from the Navajo Nation to the Rio Grande Pueblos. Well, since the Rio Grande is so close to Albuquerque metropolitan area, that they're finally experiencing what we have been experiencing here. So she is familiar with these water issues from her childhood. I did live with my grandmother, and she didn't have hyped running water growing up, so we would have to, you know, use the bathroom outside. After she and her mom moved out, so she got access to some running water. It wasn't great water. It was kind of yellow, <laughs> but it was still um, safe enough to, you know, bathe and never drank it. So she hopes the survey results can highlight a vital resource their nation needs. Ballone agrees. That's the thing. It's, it, it is a basic thing. It Everyone should be entitled to running water and all of that. While other surveys did not count hogans and trailers, this one uses satellite imagery to map all homes in the Fort Defiant section of the reservation. Soshi and Ballone head out on winding dirt roads, following a random list of homes. To find one driveway, Soshi and Ballone have to count the roads they pass. This would be seven, uh-huh. eight, right here? No, this isn't it. This isn't it. No, no it is. Without good addresses or Wi-Fi on the Navajo Nation, it can be difficult to find. Is it? it is. That Hogan was there. Yeah. Okay, yeah. At each home, residents are asked if they want to be interviewed anonymously. The survey has questions about where they get their water, their water quality, and potential solutions. They plan to survey more than 1,000 homes, and 100 will be selected for water testing, like the blacklight bag testing that Soshi and Ballone did. But the interviews can be a roller coaster of emotions. Ballone recalled one with an old man who was struggling to haul water. And he was just like, um, I'm not going to have anybody to do this, so that might be the end of us if I can't haul water anymore. It's just like, oh my gosh. Plus, many barriers stand in the way for tribal communities. Heather Himmelberger is with the Southwest Environmental Finance Center. She studied tribal water systems in Rio Grande Pueblos and found that old and faulty pipes and other infrastructure were their main concern. So you have these very expensive infrastructure projects with very few people who can pay for them. So you can imagine that that becomes problematic over time. Her 2021 study also found that many water systems were not aware that dozens of grants existed for their projects. Some did not even receive the full amount of requested funding. 
what part gets done, what part doesn't get done, and then how does that affect that community for a longer time frame? Despite this, Ballone believes the Johns Hopkins survey is what the community needs. Many of them are really, really grateful. They're like, thank you. Like, nobody has asked me these questions. Thank you for being the one to actually start something. The team plans to complete the Fort Defiance survey by November and ideally expand it to the rest of the Navajo Nation. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Emma Vandenindy. The National Disabled Veterans Winter Sports Clinic brings hundreds of veterans with life-altering injuries to the slopes in western Colorado. As Kaya Williams with our partners at Aspen Public Radio reports, the event requires a huge inventory of adaptive sports equipment, including one device that skiers can operate just by breathing. We use some race slalom skis on there, and when you see it out there, it just always makes this beautiful rail turn right on the edge. It's really, it's really cool. Dr. Jeff Rosenbluth runs the Spinal Cord Injury Rehab Program at the University of Utah. He's also a total gearhead and the founder of an adaptive sports initiative called Tetradapt. I'm a little bit of a nerd geek, and I like, uh, <laughs> I like toys. <laughs> this particular toy is the Tetra Ski, which allows disabled athletes with extremely limited mobility to ski independently independently using a joystick or a device controlled by their breath. It's kind of like a hybrid between a traditional sit-ski and a motorized wheelchair, and it even adapts for people on ventilators. Really trying to think of equipment that would work well and give us much independence and performance for folks with really complex disabilities. That was the whole goal. This device at the National Disabled Veterans Winter Sports Clinic is one of about 14 Tetra skis in the world. And while Rosenbluth doesn't expect that number to increase much, Tetradapt won't stop working on new technology. There's already a Tetra watercraft option, and off-road bikes could be next. And then we're just going to chip away at every activity and device that isn't modified yet, you know, that someone wants to do. I'm Kaya Williams. New Mexico has started the annual spring ritual of cleaning acequias. The cleaning gets underway just as a filmmaker debuts a documentary about these ancient irrigation ditches. Roz Brown, with our partners at the Public News Service, reports. R.C. Chapa has created the hour-long documentary, Acequias, The Legacy Lives On. She says the hand-built irrigation ditches have enriched the land of enchantment since 16th century Spanish settlers arrived, with many established by the Pueblo tribes long before. While some stretches are drying up, prompting fears of their extinction, Chapa believes unified communities can help protect the waterways for future generations. My dream is that this film somehow brings communities together because Climate change, if we don't start now, climate change is going to force us to become more mutualistic. The Taos Valley Acequia Association has multiple events in which farmers and volunteers will conduct spring cleaning prior to water being released. If you are a part of an acequia, you have to be a part of that community, whether you like each other or not. When it's cleaning day, you go out and clean it. You go out and take care of your section of the acequia that runs through your property. Most of New Mexico's acequias are concentrated in the upper valleys around smaller rivers and watersheds, but some stem from larger rivers, not only providing water for agriculture, but also miles of adjacent recreational trails. If there's water in the San Luis Mountains at the headwaters of the Rio Grande, then there will be water in the acequias, so we need to protect this infrastructure. It's like one of the people said, it's the most important 
important infrastructure that we have in New Mexico. Chapa hopes the film serves as an inspiration to people to keep them flowing. I'm Roz Brown. The Moab City Council was in session this week. So, what happened at the what meeting? Happened what at happened the meeting? at the meeting? What happened at the meeting? Whatever happened what at the happened meeting? What happened at the meeting? What uh, exactly happened at the meeting? Maggie McGuire, editor of the Moab Sun News, answers. At this week's Moab City Council meeting, Financial Director Ben Billingsley had serious words for elected officials and city staff. He said as he was putting together departmental requests to make next year's budget, there's a shortfall in what departments are asking for versus what the city's revenue is. A $2.3 million shortfall. Although early in the process, Billingsley warned that this would be a challenging budget to create. After consultation with council and city manager Carly Castle, there will be a presentation of the tentative budget in late April, a public hearing in May, and a final budget adoption planned for June. And that's what happened at this week's Moab City Council meeting. You can find recaps of local government meetings at moabsunnews.com. You can also watch meetings online on YouTube. Find Moab City and Grand County, Utah there. And now the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. Public officials across the state say there's big potential for flooding this spring and summer. Sophia Fisher of the Times Independent has more from their coverage. It's a story and a topic that have been resonating throughout the region and the state over the last couple of weeks, and that is the potential for intense spring runoff and potential flooding, uh, given the record high snowpack in a lot of Utah's mountains. And, you know, the LaSalle's are no exception. They have no all-time high snowpack yet, but certainly record highs for specific days. And the concern is that if we see a very quick um, spring warm-up that could instigate some flooding along Pack Creek and Mill Creek and other waterways. All right. So it's on folks' minds. Um, now, what can we do to prepare? Several things. Okay. Yes. I spoke with uh, Grand County officials and first responders are launching um, public awareness, I guess, campaign, for lack of a better term, about this. And recommendations include getting flood insurance. If you're a homeowner or a property owner, you have to do that 30 days in advance of it kicking in. So it's best to do that ASAP. Um, You can sign up for emergency alerts with Grand County, which Cora Phillips, the emergency management director, has been really working on uh, bolstering Mm -hmm. that program since she came in a couple months ago. And then uh, the county and the city are both offering free sand and bags to create sandbags, obviously. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So folks can also go fill those up at a variety of locations throughout the valley. Well, I know why you (laughs) mentioned sand and bags, because you do have to, as you said, self-fill. Yes. So create the sandbags. Okay. So there are a few things that folks can do to help prepare for flooding. Anything else that is important to pull out of this article in the Times Independent? Yeah, monitoring the weather is never a bad idea. I spoke with Jeff Colton, who works at the National Weather Service back in Grand Junction. And he said that, you know, if we start seeing a very quick rise where temperatures are kind of in the 70s down here and we're having warm nights, that would be kind of perfect conditions for floods. So keeping an eye on that's great. Uh, And there will be an event actually on reading stream gauges and stream gauge data to potentially provide a little bit of real-time information mm-hmm. about what's coming mm-hmm. down those creeks. There will be an event on that uh, in late April. I think it's the 26th at Grand County Public Library from 7 to 9 p.m. with Chris Wolkowski of the USGS. And I'll actually be doing probably some more reporting about sure. other data folks can keep an eye on if they're interested or, or live near one of the creeks. Oh, well, you know, that is something that people do keep an eye on those gauges, but um, they're not always easy to interpret. Exactly. 
exactly. Right. And and they're not, to be clear, the, the data is not necessarily a formal warning system. Right. It can it give you some information, but you're right that the, yeah. the gauges aren't necessarily easy to read or to comprehend without right. somebody explaining it to you. It certainly wasn't easy for me. So <laughs> Me neither. I needed Chris <laughs> yeah. to help me interpret that data. Yeah. Great. Anything else to say about this piece? Uh, I think uh, Jeff Colton made an interesting point that right now, you know, temperatures are obviously pretty unusually cold for this time mm-hmm. of year. And right now they're projected to stay that way throughout April, which he said is actually quite good news because it means we're probably going to still see, you know, some warming because it is spring. But mm-hmm. nights are going to remain cold. And he said having cold nights um, would be crucial to tamping down potential for floods. That being said, he still said there's at least a moderate to high potential of some flooding. So we're mm-hmm. not in the clear, but mm-hmm. it's not looking too bad right it's, now. It's doesn't look as of right now that there's going to be a huge immediate warm-up. Exactly. Okay, so next, the Times Independent has some coverage about stormwater and also culinary water issues. What's happening in this corner of the paper? Indeed, we have a pair of stories on the front page this week about various changes Moab City is implementing on water fees. Uh, One of those fees is being increased for residents, and the other one is being increased for developers to take a cost burden off of residents. So some balancing hopefully going on here. Um, on the increased side, uh, the st- city is doubling its monthly stormwater rate from four fifty to nine dollars in order to increase revenue for a variety of capital projects they want mm-hmm. to undergo. I think probably related to stormwater over the next mm-hmm. few years. Right. But on the other side, impact fees for culinary water are going to increase for developers, meaning mm-hmm. that they're going to bear more of the cost burden of creating new water infrastructure when a new development comes online. Mm -hmm. Uh, Up until now, more of that cost burden has been put on other existing water users in the city. So as you explained, the stormwater fees are related to local residences and the um, culinary water fees are related to development. Exactly. And it all feeds back into um, paying for infrastructure. Yes. You know, was there any sort of debate at the city council level about these increases or any interesting conversation? There was some. I know each of those had a public hearing, and I don't think anyone spoke during either public hearing. Mm-hmm. I know during the culinary water impact fee increase discussion, uh, Councillor Ronnie DeRossery, you know, apologized to residents for the fact that they have been bearing something of a cost burden for new development and mm-hmm. said they're working to fix it. Um, I think the stormwater fee increase, there was discussion about they have $8 million of planned for capital projects, and some of them weren't going to be able to start until like 2029. Wow. So I think discussion was around trying to increase those. Of course, there was also discussion of inflation and just general you know, growth causing costs on these projects to mm-hmm. increase. I mean, we've seen that across the board. So I think that right. was also a part of the reason why the city did double its stormwater fee. All right. Well, thank you for highlighting that piece, Sophia. One more on the front page, if you don't mind, um, the Planning Commission and our eight ADOs. What are ADOs? Yes, uh, it's an alternative dwelling overlay. Um, And for folks who don't know, Grand County has been working on this legislation, which they passed a few months ago, but they've been working on the concept for about a year now. And that is to provide an avenue for property owners to provide workforce housing that might be kind of unorthodox for more seasonal workers, such as camper vans, RVs, tiny homes, you know, folks who don't want to and or probably can't afford to buy a house or necessarily rent here. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, there's a few of these projects moving through the planning process. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Exactly. So on Monday, the Grand County Planning Commission uh, forwarded f- favorable recommendations for four applications for this overlay. Mm-hmm. These are the same four applications that the county commission back in January gave a kind of initial green light to and in their intent to apply. And mm-hmm. the next step after planning commission recommendation is the 
it'll go back to the county commission for another set of public hearings and a final decision uh, before they can theoretically get built. Anything else to say about this piece? Yeah, you know, the county commission originally heard uh, applications for eight different overlays back in January and kind of nixed or gave, you know, like unfavorable kind of feedback, I suppose, Mm -hmm. to four of those eight. And that was primarily because they were located in residential and kind of rural neighborhoods. So the four that are still going through the process are primarily located along Highway 191. There's one on Murphy Lane. There's one called the Swamp out um, Mm -hmm. west of town. Um, And it does seem like, you know, I know there was a lot of pushback on this ordinance a few months ago, primarily from folks living in rural residential areas. So I do think that a lot of those people's fears have been addressed here. And I actually chatted briefly with Grand County Commissioner Trisha Dean. Um, She was an outspoken critic um, of this program because she said that her constituents were wildly against it. She was receiving like Mm -hmm. immense um, negative feedback from them. But And, and she represents a largely rural parts of the county. Exactly. Yeah. But I spoke with her on Tuesday and she said that, you know, she thought the process at this point was going really well. And she thought that the planning commission had good discussion Monday. She's a non-voting liaison there. So she was there but didn't speak at the meeting. Um, So I do think that this overlay has been controversial, but it does seem to me like it's addressing a lot of the concerns that people had raised and is still moving forward, which is really cool to see. Right. Like you said, um, the next step is the Grand County Commission. So we'll see what happens there. Yeah. Now, before you go, Sophia, there is one more story I am hoping you can highlight in the Times Independent. This takes us to the back page of the paper. Um, Tell us about this one. Yes. uh, My editor, Doug McMurdo, wrote a really interesting feature story about a group of veterans, um, some with PTSD, uh, some with brain injury, who are using different forms of arts and music uh, to help their brains heal. And in Moab, they had come to work on astrophotography because, as folks probably know, our dark skies are renowned, um, incredible places to explore and take photos of. So they were doing some uh, photo editing, uh, I think a photo editing workshop uh, this past Sunday in town. Oh, wow. Okay. So the program is called, um, as Doug says in his article, Create a Vet. Is yes. that, am I saying that correctly? Yes. As in like Creative Vet, vet. but kind creative of smushed vet. together. And so this, as you explained, this is not the only program this organization does, but it is cool because it brought these vets to Moab. Yes. And I think, you know, it's really interesting what the arts and, and music and photography can do for folks, especially those suffering from PTSD. So uh, Doug did a great interview with the photography instructor, uh, Lieutenant Colonel George Hamilton, just about his own experience serving several tours in Iraq and Afghanistan and his experience after and why he was drawn to create a vet. So um, I think some really interesting points there and just a really cool example of folks coming to Moab, not just to recreate, but to heal. Sophia Fisher, reporter at The Times Independent. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. Science Moab founder Christina Young is handing off the science education nonprofit to new executive director Carrie Schwartz. Allison Hartford of the Moab Sun News has more from their coverage. So Science Moab began in 2017 as a passion project of Christina Young, who was then a U.S. Geological Survey scientist. And so... Um, She kind of saw the need for this connection between scientists and locals um, in the community. And she talks about this a lot, like in past events, that Science Moab is really trying to make science accessible. Um, So since then, it's grown a ton. And now they have a monthly podcast and the School to Science program for local students. And they also do a science certified program that offers customized training on local ecology and geology um, to guides and really any 
anyone who's interested. Mm-hmm. And they do events like Science Mob on Tap. And now Christina Young is stepping back and Carrie Schwartz, who started as a volunteer for Science Mob, will take over as the new executive director. Amazing. So I know Christina is still going to be involved as a board member. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. Um, but Carrie is sort of taking the lead. So um, can you tell us a little bit about her? So Schwartz's career has been in community education and um, working with organizations like gardens, museums, and public lands. Like She's worked with the National Park Service and the National Museum of Wildlife Art. Um, and she joined the Science Mob staff as the School to Science Program Director in May 2021. And so Christina said that Carrie will really be able to continue growing Science Moab, and she's really excited to see where it goes. I said this before we started recording, but it's been really lovely to see this organization grow. Mm -hmm. Um, It started, you know, Science Moab just started as a half-hour weekly radio show on KZMU. Right. And then now it's a full-fledged nonprofit doing all these amazing things, which you just outlined. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just been amazing to watch. Yeah, it's really exciting. And now they're thinking about doing School to Science and the Science Certified programs in other places around the Colorado Plateau, so even growing outside of Moab. Wow, that's incredible. Anything else to pull out from this article in the Moab Sun News? Just that everyone is very excited to see where it goes. Now moving on, um, you attended a local event recently that has (laughs) a long-running local event. Tell us about this. Yeah, so Rick Beretti has worn a lot of hats in Moab. Right now he's a river ranger with the Bureau of Land Management, but he's also the Backyard Theater magician. And every Saturday night you can find him at the Backyard Theater um, doing a magic show. Tell me about the show. I love close-up magic so I will preface this by saying that I'm extremely (laughs) easy to please but I thought it was amazing and I think where Rick really shines is that he does these incredible tricks and he also has a lot of jokes Mm -hmm. um, that he works in and he said that he has like three or four shows that he keeps kind of in his back pocket and so all of them are really meant for his audience like sometimes he'll get audiences that are all visiting families with really young kids and sometimes Mm. it'll be all college-age river Mm -hmm. guides and those two audiences are entirely different shows so the one I went to was me and three other little families and so (laughs) a lot of his audience participation involved the kids and there were a lot of like card tricks and he um, said that he first learned magic by doing a cut and restore rope trick which is where a magician appears to take a whole length of rope and cut it in half. And then with another flourish, they restore it back into one mm-hmm. rope. Mm-hmm. But he can do this in a million different ways. Like he cut the rope into three and then restored it. And then he seemed to move a knot between two different ropes and then dissolve it. Mm-hmm. And he cuts and knots and twirls this <laughs> rope in so many different ways. Um, it was really fun. And ultimately, my takeaway was that the show is not just for kids and it's also not just for tourists. Right. I, you know, I have been a few times equally impressed. Did you talk to him about what got him interested in this in this world? Yeah, I did. Yeah, he was very humble about it. Um, He said he really just became interested when he was a kid and he saw a couple magic shows and then um, he picked up a few books and he said that books are the best way to learn magic, which I thought was really interesting because you would think it would be, you know, by watching videos, but Mm -hmm. books can really outline every 
um, step of a trick. And mm-hmm. they're also super tried and true. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also he's really involved in the magician community. Like he's part of the International Brotherhood of Magicians, which is the world's largest organization for the art of magic. And so he works together with other magicians in this kind of small community. And he said he works really hard to invent his own tricks um, so that he keeps everything interesting. And he's always switching up his shows and fiddling around with how he does things. Mm -hmm. So his is really different. His magic shows are something that happens seasonally, right? So are they starting up again? Yes, they have started up again. The Backyard Theater opened in March a little bit. Some of the shows were canceled because we've had this really bizarre Mm -hmm. weather. Um, But yeah, the season is going on now. So the magic show starts 7 p.m. every Saturday night. Um, Tickets are free for kids under 3 $5 for kids under 12 and $10 for everyone else. And there's one more article in the Moonstead News that I'm hoping you can take us to, um, the Grand Center. Yes. So we talked to staff at the Grand Center, which is Grand County's hub for elder services and society, and they said they're really trying to start upping all of their events again, and they encourage seniors in the community to come by and check out their events. What, what have they got in the docket? or on the lineup what's coming up or have they been doing in the past yeah so they do a ton of things there's like a coffee and tea discussion um, where they have speakers come and then all the seniors will discuss what was talked about Um, they do lunches together and outings together like they're going to Grand Junction soon to get lunch and go shopping they're also gonna travel to Salt Lake City to see a play and go to the Loveland Living Planet Aquarium and then they do a big trip every year and this year's trip will uh, take them to Mount Rushmore. And did they talk about the importance of getting together as older members of our community? Yeah, definitely. Karen Fury, who is the chair of Grand County Council on Aging, said that everyone is recovering from COVID isolation, but especially seniors. And Mm. so right now, it's more important than ever to have a place to gather and enjoy each other's company. And the Grand Center events are really welcoming and they're open to local seniors over 60 who'd like to hang out with their peers and you know their exercise Mm -hmm. classes too and Mm -hmm. enjoy new food Um, and so they have all sorts of activities really meant for everyone. Allison Hartford reporter with the Moab Sun News. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes at our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News podcast. As always, thank you for tuning in and supporting KZMU Community Powered Radio.